Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. If tomorrow all things are gone, I worked for all my life, and I have to begin again with my daughter and my wife. I'll thank my loving Lord, not my lucky stars, to be living here today. And our flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston to New York to L.A. There's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say, and I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free, and I won't forget those who died and gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today, because there is no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. I am proud to be an American. I'm proud to be an American, and I am honored to be a Baptist. I am proud to be an American, and I am honored to be a Baptist. At the same time, I am compelled to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower. When I say I'm proud to be an American, you know, that and the song that I quoted a moment ago, some would say, are the ultimate examples of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is the idea that the United States is inherently different from all other nations. American exceptionalism says that its values, its political system, its historical development are unique in human history. American exceptionalism says that America is destined and, in fact, entitled to play a distinct and positive role on the world stage. And there are opponents. We hear them often today. Opponents to American exceptionalism, it has become a phrase that has a negative connotation. They say that there is nothing special about the United States of America. Opponents of American exceptionalism say we do not behave better than other nations. They say we're not destined, we're not entitled to influence human history in a unique way positively, and they say, they charge that God is not on our side and we're not specially blessed. Now, those who say those things, some of them are very thoughtful. Some of them are well-intentioned, and they want to remind us that from time to time we do have an image in the world as ugly Americans with great hubris and sometimes abuse. And to those I would say thank you. I would say thank you for speaking out to keep America accountable. We did it this morning when we sang America the Beautiful. Oh, beautiful 
for pilgrim feet whose stern impassioned stress, a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness, and then Catherine Bates says, America, America, God mend thy every flaw, confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. America's not perfect. And so those that would speak out against that kind of American exceptionalism that is hubris, that leads to abuse, I would say thank you for speaking your mind. There are others, however, that have less honorable intentions, I think, even malicious in nature. They simply don't like America. And to them, I would say, be glad you live in America. Be thankful that you live in America because you can say those things with impunity. At least you live in a land where you know you're free to speak your mind. And we welcome those criticisms. They keep us honest. My response to that is, America is not special. America is not special, but we indeed are unique as Americans. I would say that America does, in fact, hold a unique place on the world stage with a possibility of influencing it for the positive. But there's a caveat. I think we're in danger of losing that unique place. I would say that America is a nation of destiny, but we are not entitled. We do have a destiny to fulfill, and that destiny is to help and encourage and come alongside others so that they might also be exceptional. I would say that God is not a respecter of persons or a respecter of nations. He shows no favoritism for nations, but God does bless those nations that obey Him. I would say America is exceptional in many ways, and we have a responsibility to help other nations also to become exceptional. You know, in my pride in being an American, I'm both humbled and I'm inspired. I'm humbled by several things in America. I'm humbled by America's selflessness, its altruism, its benevolence. You know, a survey was done by the World Giving in, uh, Index. It does it every 10 years. And in 2019, they surveyed 1.3 million people across the globe, 125 countries, and they determined in as objective a way as possible that America is still number one in benevolence for those 10 years in that decade. More Americans helped strangers. More Americans donated money. More Americans volunteered their time for benevolent purposes. The rate of giving in America is pretty phenomenal. The average American gives about 3% of his or her income every year to charity. In America, the average is about $2,500 per household. In 2016, the United States gave foreign aid of $40 billion to 100 countries. You may say, well, that's a lot of money. But when you look at what Americans themselves did individually, they gave seven times that much domestically for charity and benevolent causes. I'm humbled by America's selflessness, by its sacrifice. Over one million Americans, men and women, have paid the last full measure of devotion to defend freedom. I know I've recounted this story before for you, but I'm going to do it again. 
In January of 2003, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, George Carey, the recently retired Archbishop of Canterbury, well-intentioned, suggested to Colin Powell that the America, America's plans to invade Iraq later that year were an excessive use of hard power. We need better to use soft power. And he basically said that America was about empire building. And you remember Powell's response. He was Secretary of State by this time. Over the years, the United States has sent many of its fine young men and women into great peril to fight for freedom beyond her borders. The only amount of land that we have ever asked for in return is enough land to bury those who did not return. There are war graves in several countries abroad, 10 countries, 25 cemeteries on four continents that contain the remains of 130,000 plus Americans who have given the last full measure of devotion. What's interesting about that fact, the irony is, there is not a single cemetery in this nation of war graves for the dead of those that came to defend America. This morning, Robert Beltram graciously spoke our pastoral prayer. He was a Navy, he is a Navy chaplain, and he was at Arlington Cemetery for almost two years, where he buried over 1,600 of our America War dead. We bury ours there, we bury them here, but there are no cemeteries of defenders who have come to our side. I am humbled by that sacrifice. I'm humbled by the, the compassion of Americans, even for our enemies. When I was in Desert Storm, I could hear the rolling thunder of the bombers that were pelting the Iraqi lines 30 or 40 miles away. And yet, at the same time, when we met in chapel services, our soldiers prayed for those soldiers that were being obliterated in the trenches. Compassion, even for our enemies. I am humbled by our forgiving and giving nature. After World War II, you're familiar with the Marshall Plan in 1948, developed by the Secretary of State George Marshall, the European Recovery, Recovery Plan. It replaced another one, the Morgenthau Plan of Demilitarization. And it was offered, interestingly enough, we don't say this uh, usually publicly, but it was offered to all nations, all European nations that had suffered loss, including the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, who refused that aid. The total paid in the Marshall Plan over the next few years was a quarter of a trillion dollars in 2022 money. And it enabled Germany now to have the fourth largest economy in the world. We don't talk much about Japan. The U.S. invested over a six-year period from 1946 to 52, $28 billion in Japan, and MacArthur invited Edward Deming to come over and to help the Japanese redesign their industrial complex so that they have in fact become the third largest economy in the world today. Forgiving and giving. I'm also inspired in my pr pride for America. I'm inspired by American values. For democracy, not a monarchy. For democracy, not an aristocracy. For democracy, not an anarchy. For democracy not a dictatorship or tyranny. As Abraham Lincoln said, 
there at Gettysburg. We are a republic of the people and what? By the people and for the people. I am inspired by our value of justice. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice. For whom? For all. You know, our system is not perfect. Our nation is not perfect. It's flawed. But it's a process. It's a process in which we steadily endeavor to progress. Social justice has taken on a different kind of uh, context today, but I still believe in social justice, the social justice of the Old Testament and the social justice of Jesus. You see, there's a problem in trying to achieve social justice. On the one hand, we need equally to be fair to all segments in society. In a pluralistic society such as ours, with many cultures blended in a melting pot, we need to strive to be equally fair, and yet at the same time, the other side of that is without showing favoritism to the haves and also excessive reverse discrimination as a result. So it's tough. I am humbled by the justice in this nation that we try to achieve in terms of international human rights. A central goal of the United States foreign policy is the promotion of respect for those human rights. You may be familiar with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights published by the UN in 1948. It's based on, in fact, a statement that was made in 1941 by our president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that stated the objectives of the Allies in World War II to achieve four freedoms the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, and the freedom from fear, and the freedom from want. And upon those freedoms, this charter was developed. And you know, ironically, no, intentionally, who headed up the commission, the committee, then that developed that declaration was none other than his widow, Eleanor Roosevelt. We have a U.S. agency in America that is committed to pursuing international human rights, the Bureau of Democracy Human Rights, and labor. I am humbled by that commitment to justice. I'm humbled by truth, honesty, accountability, open dealing, transparency. That's what we speak about when those that are challenging American excellence, when they speak that way. You know, there have only been five presidencies out of 46, just five presidencies, and all of them were in the 19th century that have not been marred by major political scandal. In the 20th century, just stop and think about it, none of us were living during the time of Harding's Teapot Dome scandal, but it, 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 it shook the nation. Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick in the 60s, Nixon and Watergate in the 70s, Reagan and the Iran-Contra scandal in the 80s, and of course Clinton and Monica Lewinsky in the 90s. We don't like to remind ourselves of those kinds of things, but the good thing about it is America deals with those in stride and with great transparency, and we strive to uncover falsehood and expose the truth. Impeachment. You've heard talk of impeachment recently after Roe versus Wade was overturned. Impeach the justices. Well, folks, that's not new. There have been 21 impeachments by the U.S. House of Representatives in our history. Eight of them have resulted in convictions, and all of those were judges. Four times for presidents. Johnson, Clinton, and Trump got it twice. We expect accountability from our officials, and that's a good thing. 
It's not a new thing. And in fact, when people call for impeachment, one of the things that they're doing is they're calling for that kind of transparency. And we welcome it. The main point is this, I think. You know, America in its democracy is resilient. And we're not reliant on one party. We're not reliant on one person. No single person carries this nation. And no one is above examination and the transparent examination of their character and their behavior. I am humbled by the equality in this nation. Equal dignity. Our Declaration of Independence, of course, says that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all, and we say men, but of course what they meant was persons are created equal. We have equal access and opportunity at Ellis Island. The quote from Emma Lazarus in the New Colossus, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed, to me, I lift my lamp by the golden door. You see, we welcome in this nation folks from all nations seeking opportunity and equal access to it. There's equal sacrifice as well. Those killed in the Pentagon attack, you've heard me say before, when American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into it. 30% of them were African-American, several Latinos, Jose Calderon, Diane Pedro, Daniel Caballero, Rosemary Chapa, several Asians, Chris Bishendot, Ham Moy, Kang Nguyen, and Chen Sun Pak. Many different nations, you see, equally sacrificing. Many different faiths. There were 40 Catholics, 40 Protestants, 4 Jews, 30 Baptists, a Buddhist and an atheist, equally sacrificing their lives. I am humbled by the value of freedom, freedom of speech and freedom of religion especially, so that we can have open dialogue in a public square, even about such volatile issues as same-sex marriage, abortion, racism, and health care. We're going to be talking about those things this fall as we deal with them from the pulpit and as we look at what the Scripture says about each one of those controversial issues, we need to speak about them openly. The freedom of religion, not mere toleration, not the government permitting some religions to worship and others not, rooted in principles in the Ten Commandments, which are clearly Judeo-Christian, but also rooted in the Declaration of Independence, which is not explicitly Christian, but it is certainly godly. For we endowed by our Creator with those rights. He is the supreme judge of the world, the Declaration goes on to say. So this nation is found on godly principles, and the Constitution safeguards those rights for us. I am proud to be an American. I'm proud to be free, but that's not enough. You see, that's not where I believe we get our freedom. I said I'm honored to be a Baptist. Baptists have made a unique contribution in the world and on the world stage and the life of religion. And you know what it is. It is soul competence. Soul competence means that every soul is created in the image of God. Soul competence means that God is sovereign over every soul. No one exercises sovereignty over your conscience or over your mind. Soul competence, as Baptists have defined it, means that we're equal in God's sight. We're equal in value. 
We're equal in access to the throne of God, and we're equal in accountability to Him. Baptists are not the only ones who have said this, but we have charted a way forward in history where we have consistently stood for that so that we have made a difference politically and also in the life of religion. Baptists have advocated soul freedom for 400 years, not just to believe, but also to act on our beliefs. That's soul freedom. Soul competency is the freedom to believe. Soul freedom is the freedom to act upon it. Baptists have stood for voluntarism. We believe that no one should be coerced into believing. We believe it's impossible to coerce somebody into believing. One might be brainwashed, but it is impossible to, con to, to compel them or to, to uh, coerce them to believe. We believe that we should be free to gather as churches not because the government tells us to do so or prohibits us from, but we should have that right autonomously. Baptists have stood for the separation of church from state based on biblical principles. Jesus said, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. Render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and unto God those things that are God's. We believe in the separation of church and state also because we understand there's a tension between obeying, which we find in Romans 13, our officials, and also praying for our officials, which Robert mentioned a little earlier today, and also Lyndall did as well. We pray for our officials. We're commanded to do that. And there's a tension between those things on the one hand and the, the apostles as they stand before the Sanhedrin, and when they're told to be silent, they say, we must do what? We must obey God rather than men. We as Baptists believe in the principle of free exercise of religion. And we believe that it is impossible to maintain that principle in a state where it is controlled, where they control religion. We believe it is impossible for all persons to be genuinely free religiously, equally free religiously, where there is a state church. We believe that that is taxation without representation. There are atheists and agnostics that would be paying that tax, and they do not believe. It's taxation without representation. We believe that when we do that, when we have a state church, and we've said this for 400 years, that we forfeit our prophetic voice. You cannot speak out when you're paid by the government. We believe that there's strings attached whenever you receive money from the government. So for many reasons, Baptists have stood not only for freedom, absolute freedom of religious conscience, but also separation of church from state. And Baptists have paid with their lives and imprisonment. I have shared with you before, and many of you know the history of Baptists in this respect. In England, standing for universal religious freedom, for freedom for all, whether they be Turk, heretic or Jew, as Thomas Hell was put it in his Mystery of Iniquity, for which he was jailed in, in 1612, and he died there four years later. John Merton, his successor in his church as pastor, jailed in 1620, and he also stood for absolute freedom of religious conscience in his humble supplication. In America, Baptists paid the price. Roger Williams, in writing his Bloody Tenet of Persecution in 1644, against the burden that was imposed upon them by Massachusetts Bay. And John Clark, recounting the ills that Baptists and others had suffered at the hands of the state church in his ill news from New England.
Baptists have played a leading role in defending religious liberty, as Isaac Bacchus did in Massachusetts when he said that when we pay a tax for religion in the state, it is taxation without representation. When John Leland, in his Rights of Conscience Inalienable, said that it is not the government's right to restrict religion or to permit it. When we say that the government gives us the right to worship, we say then that the government also has the right to withdraw it. Baptists, as you know, especially in Virginia, were responsible for leading the way in disestablishing the church and laying the foundation eventually for the constitutional First Amendment that guarantees us free exercise and also no establishment. I am proud and I am honored to be a Baptist, but that's not enough. That's not what makes me free. My nation does not make me free because of its values, because of its emphasis on freedom. Being a Baptist does not make me free as much as we have proclaimed free exercise of religion through the centuries. No, it comes down to the last point. I'm free because I am compelled to be a Christian. The source of all freedom, I believe, is Jesus Christ. Some would say, well, that's a rather bold statement. How can secular freedom be based on Christ? It is. In John 8, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, uh, truly. Truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So you see, if the Son makes you free, then you are free indeed. You're free at last. I think there are three sources of genuine truth in this world, and they all come from God. You see, we know the truth, and the truth makes us free. You see, the originator of that truth is the one who authored creation on behalf of the Father, and it is Jesus Christ. We know he says in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He is the source of all truth. The medium of that truth also comes from God. It is His Word. They are the words of the prophets and the apostles, which we have in our Scripture, which are interpreted by Jesus Christ. It is the Bible. And we know from John, the eighth chapter, He says about His words, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free from the text that we just read. So the medium of truth is the Scripture, it is the Word of God, which was authored ultimately through His Spirit that came from Christ. The discerner and the teacher of truth is the Holy Spirit, which was sent to us by the Son and the Father. In John 14, He says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that he may be with you forever, and that is the spirit of truth. 
All truth comes from God through Jesus Christ, through his word, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what this does is it results in true freedom. When we have the truth, then we have true freedom. You see, there's a changed situation that occurs. Every person that has ever breathed and walked the face of the earth and that does so today or will millennia to come if Christ does not come before sins. And every person who sins becomes enslaved to sin and is condemned to death. But we know that Christ came to change that situation. He came to release us from the bondage of sin and death and to introduce us to the freedom that comes through him. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Romans 8 puts it this way, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. He came to bring us true freedom, freedom from the bondage of sin and death. And upon that basis, all other freedoms flow. You see, as a result of that, there's a change in nature and there's a change in status. We have been then, through Christ, redeemed from slavery to become someone, to become children of God. Galatians tells us, but in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And he was born of a woman born under the law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. What does that mean? We were following the law and we could not keep the law. We were following the law that condemns those that do not keep it. We were following the law and we were sinners and we fell short. You see, the law is good because it sets boundaries, but the law also means death because we cannot keep it. But he came that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive what? Adoption. Adoption as the children of God, as sons. And therefore, when we follow Christ, who came to release us from that bondage, it says, we are no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we have become sons. We have become children of God. And if we are children of God, then we become heirs through God. You see, we have been freed from slavery in many ways. Freed from the slavery, slavery of worldly materialism. In verse number 3 of Galatians 4, it says, At one time we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. That is the way the world is today, and it has been forever since the Garden of Eden. Men and women are in bondage to the elemental things of the world, but Christ came to set us free from that. We are free from slavery to the law. We have the law to set the boundaries, but we're not slaves to the law. We are not prey to legalism and the futility of endless works to save ourselves, which do not work. Yes, we keep the law, but by what we do, we're not saved. By what we do, we cannot pay for a single sin that we have ever committed. By what we do, we cannot wash our hearts and our souls from the sin and its stain, you see. It's not works that save us. So it frees us from the legalism that we think will save us. It frees us from the slavery of tradition, an inherited religiosity, and that is what Jesus is speaking about in John 8. When his opponents said, we've never been bound, we've never been slaves, we have Abraham for our father, we depend on him. And Jesus came to tell them, Abraham isn't the one who set you free. Inherited religion will not take us into heaven. The faith of your fathers, the faith of our fathers about whom we spoke and sang today, does not get us into heaven. 
Oh, it is a faith that they, they share with us, but it is only our believing that individually then that sets us free from sin and death. Christ's freedom is genuine. It is freedom indeed. You see, Christ himself never coerced a single person. Christ never coerced anyone to follow him. He defied Roman coercion, those Romans that tried to force people to become pagans. He defied Jewish coercion, the Sadducees' empty ritualism. He defied it. The Pharisees' legalism, he stood against it. No, he proclaimed a true faith. And what he basically meant, it's the preaching of the cross that saves, not the pressure of the government. His disciples followed him by choice. They were compelled, not coerced. They were compelled by an inner urgency because of his presence, because of his person, because of his authority the with which he spoke, an inner urgency that compelled them to follow him, but they were never coerced. In fact, Jesus said this, don't follow me if you're not prepared to pay the price. And it wasn't in works. He said, don't follow me if you're not willing to give yourself up. Don't follow me if you're not willing to die to self. Don't follow me if you're not willing to take up your cross. He actually discouraged people from following him if it was simply going to be legalism. No, if you're going to follow me, you must do what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And they did it by choice, and it is the same, it has been the same for 2,000 years. You see, it's every generation and each person who must choose individually. Though I'm proud to be an American and though I am honored to be a Baptist, it is not because I'm either one of those that I will enter the kingdom of God when I leave this mortal veil. It's not because I am the son of James T. Spivey Sr., and it's not because I am the son of Abraham. It is because I am a child of God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we know that we should never try to force anybody to accept the gospel. We should never coerce anyone. In fact, it's impossible to do so, but we should never leverage government power. We should never leverage social pressure or guilt or shame to try to force people into the kingdom of God. You cannot force that kind of conformity in the spirit. We should not try to manipulate people emotionally, socially, economically, or politically. No, the compelling thing that draws people into the kingdom of God is nothing less than God's love who brings us freedom in Christ. You see, it is His authority, and He speaks with the authority of the Father. It is the Holy Spirit's conviction that is powerful in the hearts and the souls of men and women and boys and girls. It is that convicting, compelling power of God that draws them to the Father's love. And folks, it can compete on the world of pluralism stage very adequately. God can communicate through the power of His Spirit and through, the word, through His Word to draw Him and draw people to His side. It does not need us forcing and coercing people to do so. You see, Christ's freedom knows no national boundaries. I am proud to be an American. I pray that if you're from another nation, you're proud to be a citizen of your nation. If your nation is not exceptional, our prayer is that someday it will be. There are many exceptional nations in this, in, in this world. Fulfilling the mission and the vision that God is giving that nation, 
But you see, it's not a matter of national boundaries. That's not what is important. Our fundamental identity, we know, is not as Americans. Our fundamental identity is not that we are Baptists. Our fundamental identity is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we know what Paul said about that. Our citizenship is there, not here. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also await, uh, await eagerly a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, we're pilgrims in an alien land. Our citizenship is in heaven, and our ruler is the King of Kings. Our birth certificate is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and by that we are born again. Our passport is the Lamb's Book of Life. Our portfolios are as ambassadors for Christ. We're drafted as soldiers of the cross. We enter the kingdom through the resurrected tomb. Our dwelling place is in the Father's house where there are many mansions. We serve here the church militant, and someday gloriously we will serve and reign forever victoriously in the church, victoriously in heaven. We are marching, in fact, to Zion, the holy city of God. You know, the only exceptionalism that really counts isn't American exceptionalism or Baptist exceptionalism. It is Jesus Christ. Only He is exceptional. Only He is the one that is inherently different from all others, uniquely different from any human who walked the face of this earth because He was fully God and fully divine and fully man and fully human. You see, only He is unique. His person, His values, His role, and His actions are the only unique person values and actions in all of human history that made a permanent difference. Yes, he was destined to play the unique role on the world stage, and only he, he and only he is entitled. Not a single one of us is entitled. He is entitled to his place by the right hand of God the Father Almighty because he shed his blood to purchase us from sin and death. And because of that, he is both destined to be king of kings, which he is, and is entitled to be our Lord. God does show favor. He's not a respecter of, of nations and persons, but he does show favor. He says this, whoever, whoever follows my son, whoever follows my son who is the Christ, upon that person, upon that man, upon that woman, upon that boy, upon that girl, I will show my favor and bless them eternally. You know, John the Baptist put it this way, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. God favors those who follow His Son. You may be proud to be an American or whatever nationality you are. You may be honored to be a Baptist or an Episcopalian or a Methodist or whatever tradition you have come from. But what really matters is this. Have you been compelled to the point of surrendering your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you been set free from the law of sin and death? And do you have a place in eternity that has been reserved for you by the one that is destined to be king, 
and who is entitled to invite you into God's kingdom. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.